And when there was a man that did an internship in his church years ago, and he would baptize two at a time. <laughs> and they would just be screaming bloody murder. And soon he would say, give them here. And he would take them, and they would just go like this. And he would walk them all around the church, and I thought, oh, okay, great, I can do that as well. And so years ago, I was baptizing a family that had come to Christ, and they had a, just a little one. And we got ready, I finished, and I said, okay, she's maybe two years old, are we ready? And she took off down the aisle, <laughs> screaming. I didn't know what to do, so I got a bowl of water and just threw it at her. <laughs> but praise the Lord that... Um, I never did catch up to her, and I don't think she was ever baptized. <laughs> but praise the Lord, there's no power in the water. It's an outward sign of an, what we hope is an inward reality. Second uh, Peter chapter 2. Let me just turn there. And invite you to take notes as the Holy Spirit leads and guides you. Most people believe that Peter wrote this letter just before he died around 67, 68 A.D. The church throughout the modern-day Turkey, what was going on there, they were facing some significant challenges from within and from without, but most of them actually from within, from within the church. There were false teachers who had professed Christ, put themselves in positions of leadership, and they were denying who Jesus was, and they were not living according to his commandments, and they were living such nasty, dirty lifestyles that even the community was beginning to persecute the church because they said, this is what Christians do. Wow, we're not going to have that. Now, several weeks ago, we looked at the marks of a false teacher as Peter explained it in the very beginning of chapter 2. Today, we're going to look at the end of chapter 2, where he ends this section, this whole section on false teachers, and he, he gives us some ideas of what the unconverted heart looks like. Now, our culture has been greatly affected by the gospel, hasn't it? We live in an age of so much light and so much religion, but my friends, how do we distinguish when it is only lips and tongues that are touched and not true regeneration. And you say, what in the world does regeneration mean? Well, it's a theological term. It just means born again. It means that Christ is in you. It means what he starts his book talking about in chapter 1, that divine nature comes and dwells within us. What's new in us is Christ is in us now. That's what it means to be born again, is suddenly Christ is in you where Christ was not in the area before, giving us new desires. And this we call theologically regeneration. Now, this is the very thing that Peter is trying to help the church understand and distinguish, and it's good for us to reflect on as well. So let's just read 2 Peter 1, and I'm going to start at verse 20 and read to the very end. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are entangled again in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. 
For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from it. The holy commandment delivered to them. When the true proverb says has happened to them, the dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to the wallow in the mire. Let's pray. Jesus, I I thank you for these words. And our church today as a whole around the world is plagued by this very thing, plagued by men and women who come in and they know nothing of the Holy Spirit. They know nothing of saving faith and being born again and having a new heart, new desires. Lord, they have different motivations. And yet, it's been there since the beginning. And Peter even tells us that the church will constantly, and has constantly, from the time of Moses, been plagued by false prophets and false teachers. Lord, but we thank you so much for regeneration. We thank you for changing us, Lord. Radically changing us and filling us with your Holy Spirit and giving us a new identity, Lord. We thank you that this is all and entirely a work of your grace. I ask that you take your word now and you'd apply it to each person here, their heart and their minds, Father, so that they feel as if the Spirit is talking to them through your word. And they feel encouraged. And in the end, their desire would be today to leave here saying and reveling in the fact that they have an amazing and awesome God. Or that they don't know you and they fly to Christ to be changed with love in their hearts for what he's done for them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was 25 years old, I, was, I spent some time in kind of the steppe region of Asia, and I was living in a, a small gear or a tent there, And I'd spent nine months in language school to prepare to go out that way. And the area I was in had never had a Christian church. And every morning you'd hear the Buddhist horns for prayer go off. But there was nowhere in town, no history of the gospel ever coming to that village. Well, there were two young men who professed faith in the Lord. And I started meeting with them so excited on a regular basis. And it wasn't very long after I began to meet with them that... I started to, to see differences in who they were and their, their pursuits. One wanted to serve. He wanted to learn. He wanted to worship. He wanted to read the scriptures. And he really loved me as a brother and a foreigner in his land. The other always had excuses. He never wanted to learn. Worship was only about the experience. And he always wanted something from me and something from the church. Now, one day, an old friend named Atkin Bater came up to me, and he said, Rusty, can I have a few words with you? And I said, sure. And he had just had a few simple things to say. And he said, I want you to know you have two good friends. I said, yes, I do. And he said, one is good, one is bad. And he walked away. Now, I saw that played out because it wasn't long after that that the one that he said was bad 
ended up stealing a great deal of money from me, and when confronted, he ran off to the capital city, and I never saw him again. But the other loved the Lord, ended up move, had nowhere to stay in the town, ended up moving in a little woodshed in the coldest country in the world so that he could stay because it was the only church in the region, only small gathering of believers, because he wanted to know the Lord. And the last I heard, he went on to train for the ministry. Now, it was a learning experience for me. Two men, both professing to be followers of Christ. One a Christian, not perfect, but a new man, a new creation, with evidence that God was working in his life so that even my Buddhist neighbor could see it and pronounce it with his little finger. No, that's bad, sorry, with his big finger. That's good. The other was all lips and tongues, all lips and tongues, and quickly returned to his polluted life the way of life that he loved so dearly. Now, the church in Peter's day was facing something quite similar. Second Peter 2, Peter, after calling these men, these false teachers, waterless springs, boastful, slaves of corruption, he finishes by saying here at the end of this chapter and before he moves on, they are like dogs that return to their vomit. And my friends, what he's saying is their nature has never changed. They are returning to their sin and the pollution of their own hearts because that's who they are. That's what they love most. The unregenerate person, the person who's not born again, who doesn't have saving faith, his course of life or her course of life will always contradict their profession that Christ is Lord. Now... There are conflicts and struggles with sin with the Christian, the born-again Christian, and the non-Christian in the church. But there is a vast difference between them and their approach to life within the church. what What do you mean, Rusty? Well, often what I've seen is there's three main reasons that non Christians profess Christ and go to church both in the early church and now as well. You might sum them up by saying carnal, that means the flesh, natural, and legal. So carnal means they want something from the flesh that they can get in the church. Well, maybe they want to appease their spouse, so they come and they profess to be a believer. Maybe they want to get into a position of respect, so they come. Maybe they want business contacts, Maybe there's a cute girl or an attractive boy they want to meet, or they think it's safe ground to meet singles, so they come and profess to be believers. Maybe there's business contacts. You see, there's something there besides Christ that draws them in. But secondly is the natural, which means the conscience. It means they realize that they have a guilty conscience and they want to appease it. And so they come and they think, if I come and be part of this, then my conscience is clear. And the third is the legal. And the legal is the person who believes that God is pleased with me when I check all the religious boxes. So I come, I do, I perform. I go to church, I go to Sunday school, I give a bit of money, I volunteer my time. Tick, 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 tick. The legal. And therefore they come and they think they've done this and therefore I'm a believer. Now, The desire of the believer, the born-again Christian, is completely different. It's summed up in Psalm 26.8. It says this. David says this. 
I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Listen, God's people love God, and they love to worship and be with him. J.P. Forsyth, who was a minister years ago, but was a non-Christian ministering within the church, he says this after he became a believer. He talks about his change in 1868. He says this, I went from being a lover of love to an object of grace. Isn't that awesome? I went from being a lover of love. I love the things of religion. I love the things of the church. To now I know I'm an object of grace. I know that Christ has taken hold of me and saved me and changed me. I'm an object of his grace. And therefore I want to come and worship. So here's the main idea this morning. If you're taking notes, it's just this. People will not live a life contrary to their nature very long. People will not live a life, and I mean a spiritual life, contrary to their true nature very long. All right, should we dive in? Thank you. Let's do that. There's two things we want to see. Point one, two marks here of a heart that's not born again. Look at verse 20 in your Bibles with me, point one. They will move back towards a polluted lifestyle. There's the first thing. The first mark of someone in the church that's actually not a Christian is they will move back towards a polluted lifestyle. Verse 20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. Notice what it says there. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, Now, 4 connects this to what's come before. So verse 19 tells us we're talking about these same false teachers. So that's the crowd. That's who he's talking about, non-believers within the church. Now, previously he described them as teaching destructive heresies, denying Christ, living what he calls a sensual or sexual lifestyle, greedy. One's God says he will cast in hell, according to this chapter. And now he says... If they have escaped the world's defilements. Do, do you see? I mean, how can he say they've escaped the world's confile, or defilements on one side, and on the other side he says they're polluted, they're going to hell? Is he calling them believers? No. He's saying at one time they had come out of the world into the church, leaving the pollution of the world behind. Much like someone might escape a blizzard by entering a warm house with a big fire. Now, how did they leave those defilements? Look in your Bible. Through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They came into the church and they grew in a knowledge of Christ and his teachings. And as they followed his teachings... They left their former polluted lives and practices behind. Notice, though, Peter doesn't say they have faith. He doesn't say they're believers. He says they've gained a knowledge of Jesus. Then he goes on and said it was only short-lived. Look in your Bibles. They are entangled in them and overcome. Entangled and overcome. 
They only stepped out of the blizzard for a short season. They returned back to it. They have been overcome by the desires of their flesh again. They've been entangled by those pleasures of the world. The world they came out of now has recaptured them again, and they are woven back into the fabric of the world's pollution. It means their lives are just as bad as before they had a knowledge of who Jesus Christ was. They're still full of greed. They're still giving themselves into their sinful desires and their flesh. They're still having adulterous relationships. They're still boasting in the knowledge of Christ and their accomplishments. Now, the last thing he finishes here with is notice the end is bad. The last state has become worse for them than the first. Their position now is far worse than before they heard the gospel and rejected it. So that means that someone who comes into the church and they gain a knowledge, they hear, gain a knowledge of the gospel, when they go back out, their position is the worst. It's far worse than someone who has never heard. And then the question is, why? Why is that? Well, there's probably lots of reasons, but one of them I found was Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 and 27. Let me read this to you. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment. The person who gains a knowledge of the truth of the gospel and hears the message of the good news and reject it, it is in the worst position, or they are in the worst position because there no longer remains a sacrifice for them. In other words, if they reject God's grace and God's love for them and the person and the work for Jesus Christ, there is nothing left from them but law and justice from God. You might say it like this, when they come out of the storm into the church and it's warm, if they say, I'm going back into the storm... There's no other hut in the blizzard for them. That's it. When they reject Christ. In Fyodor Dostoevsky's book, Crime and Punishment, which I'm sure all of our high school students here love to read, so excited to read it, he tells the the story of a poor student in Russia named Rachkalnikov who deliberately needs money. And so he murders an elderly pawnbroker. And from that time forward, he seeks to convince himself that he did the world a favor. For this man had no value or nothing to offer the world, he says. His life really didn't matter that much. He's just an old man. Now, instead of the prosperous life that he hoped for, his life is filled with outpourings of judgment for his action. Dostoevsky's point is punishment follows crime. Peter's point is the same. When you walk away from Christ, you walk away from the only one who could take the punishment from all of our crimes against God, who could take our guilt upon himself. And what is left is only judgment, which is the worst possible position for a man or woman to find themselves in. And so when you reject God's love and grace you're left with law and justice. Second, people will not live a life contrary to their natures for long, 
Not only will the unconverted in the church be woven back into the pollution of the world, they'll go out, but second, they will turn away from Christ's commands. Point two. If you look at verse 21 and 22 in your Bibles with me. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Do you see those words, turn from it? They have moved in the opposite direction of the gospel. Notice, it doesn't say they've turned from the church. They're still in the church. They want to be in the church, either because something of their flesh, their conscience, or legal. But they've turned. What have they turned from? Look in your Bibles. They've turned back from the holy commandment delivered to them. To come under the knowledge of Christ means they have been taught the commandments of God. And they are turning now from obeying Christ. And notice they see no contradiction with turning and refusing to obey God and yet still professing to be a believer. So on one hand, they say, we are not going to obey Jesus. We think what he teaches is ridiculous. We think we know better. And on the other hand, they say, yeah, I'm still a follower of Christ. Yeah, I'm still able to teach within the life of the church. Now, listen to what 1 John 2, 4 says. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in them. To them, it was anything but holy or sacred, like Peter describes it. It's not something, God's word was not something to be cherished and kept intact, but they did just the opposite with the gospel message. They altered it, they rejected it, and they perverted it. Now, Peter finishes with their final state. Look at verse 22 with me, and we'll close here. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. He gives two proverbs. One from the Bible, a dog returns to its own vomit. Second, from their culture, that a washed pig, after you labor to wash your pig, it goes out and it finds mud again. What's he saying? What's he saying about these people? Well, in the Jewish world, a dog was not your best friend. He wasn't your best mate. You didn't have him living in your house. So a dog was unclean. They were considered to be dirty. Um, They were considered to be kept away from you. And a pig was not to be eaten according to the laws of Leviticus. It was unclean, considered to be kept away. Now why is Peter calling these men in the church pigs and dogs? His point is twofold. One is they've never changed. They've come into the church as unclean, not part of God's people, and they're going out of the church as unclean. In other words, they're not born again. God's nature has not come to dwell in them. They are still unclean, just like they've always been unclean. And I can't remember what my second point was. Their true nature won the day. And they returned to it. 
even though they are still in the church, still seeking to teach in the name of God. Now, does this mean if they would have just obeyed Jesus' commandments, they'd be Christians? No. Christians don't keep God's Word perfectly, and it is not the keeping of Christ's commandments that makes us believers. But the difference is the regenerate heart permanently embraces Christ and His Word. They, they embrace embracing. That makes no sense. They embrace loving Christ as their Savior and as their Lord. But the unsaved person, they will be transient and temporary in how they follow Christ. The believer fights the pollution in their hearts with and through the strength of God in them. And we never stop that battle until we die. The saint, when we draw the sword from our sheath, we throw away the sheath because we fight until the end. Sometimes he or she wins. Sometimes we lose. But in God's grace, we keep battling, don't we? Growing in obedience to Christ and love of His truth because He's in us by grace through faith alone. What Peter describes here, the unconverted heart in the church, the fight is temporary. It's not really a fight. It's a small argument. Out with the desires of the world one day, back in the next, in the center of the heart. Isaiah 29, 13 says it like this. These people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The commandments of Christ will never rest and remain in the hearts of someone who doesn't love Jesus because Christ is not there. And lastly, even though there can be so much zeal and passion for a season without being born again by true saving faith in Christ, it will fade and it will give out. The Word of God grows stale and dry because the Spirit is not there. Now, we're about to take the Lord's Supper, and I just want to give two reflections before we do. When you examine your own hearts, do you see not the signs of perfection or performance that you're pursuing, but a simple, simple trust in the Savior, a simple surrender to Him as your Lord? Do you see a, real, a love of the things of God and His commandments? a love of the people of God? Do you see the Holy Spirit working there in your life, changing you by small, often slow, ordinary things? If that's your faith, then this is a feast of spiritual nourishment for you. Christ comes to us in the Lord's Supper. He welcomes you to look upon Him by faith and rejoice with open arms. But if not, I would just encourage you. I remember I gave a talk years ago at a boys' camp, and a boy came up to me and he said, Rusty, I was raised in a Christian home. I've prayed that prayer 50 times. My heart's never been changed. I try, I try, I try, I try. I said, go get alone with the Lord. Cry out to him to save you. Cry out to him to fill you with saving faith and his Holy Spirit. He calls me three months later on the phone, and he said, Rusty, 
I got alone on the side of a hill today, and I just cried out to the Lord, Save me! Change me! My faith is in you. And he said, he did. He said, I know I'm born again. Christ has changed me. If you're here today and you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, your faith has been temporary, it's been religious, it's of the flesh, you're wanting something from the church, I'll just hold up the gospel to you and say, Christ loves you, and his death for you is sufficient for all of your sins. Take hold of him by faith and by repentance alone, and be adopted, be saved, be washed, be forgiven. Can I ask the elders to come forward now, and we'll take the Lord's Supper. While they're preparing that, I just want to read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as Paul explains a little bit about the Lord's Supper. It says this in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What is the Lord's Supper? Well, it's the body and blood of Jesus Christ broken for you. It's God's substitute, his grace, his love for you, which we receive simply by faith alone. It's the Lamb of God. Who is it for? If you are a believer, whether you have great faith or whether you have simple faith, small faith, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you've expressed that faith in baptism, whether it's in our church,